0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Truly, nothing is more important than that we grasp rightly who Jesus is and no truth is as eternally transforming than knowing accurately who Jesus is. And today's passage gives us a great window into who Jesus is. And then, on the back side of it, the implications that has for the way we live. So today's passage is titled, my sermon this morning is titled, The Glory of God in Jesus. It is the passage that was just read. And in this passage, we'll see a glimpse of Jesus' true glory. Let me just remind you what's happening in Matthew. In chapter 16, verse 21, we read, From that time on, Jesus is now focusing on his disciples in a unique way. He is still doing ministry publicly, but often afterwards he'll take his disciples aside and explain things to them more thoroughly. Here he is focusing on those who are his followers and edifying them for what it means to follow him well. So let's look in verse 1 and walk through this passage carefully and then tease out the implications of it. Verse 1, And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And if you have Old Testament background, you notice some immediate familiarities. Because in Exodus 24, after six days, God had Moses come up to the mountain, and there he saw part of God's glory. Here in today's passage, Jesus after six days on the seventh, has taken up a select few to behold again, but now in his person, the glory of God. So in verse 1, we already have parallels and expectations to a mountaintop to see the true glory of God, but here it is in the person of Jesus. So verse 2, we're not too surprised to read, and he was transfigured. It's the Greek word metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. He was changed. His appearance was changed. And verse 2, and his face shone like the sun. You remember when Moses went up on the mountain, and after he came down, Moses' face was shining, and he had to put a veil over it. But remember, Moses' face was shining as a reflection of God's glory. Here, Jesus' face is shining on its own, because he is God in flesh. Remember, in Jesus' ministry, almost in the entirety of it, he is veiling his glory in flesh. But here we have a glimpse of the true glory that he has always possessed, the glory of God. So his face on its own shines like the sun. Paul, understanding this in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, will talk in 2 Corinthians 3 about Moses having a fading, reflective glory. But then in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul will say, we preach from the same God who shined light out of darkness, the same God whose glory of God was in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses could merely temporarily radiate a reflection of God's glory, but Jesus is not the reflection Jesus is the reality. So here in verse 2, Jesus is shining what is already his. Remember, this is, by the way, how the world ends. When God creates a new heaven and a new earth. We read in Revelation 21, This city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. Here then we have a preview of this eternal shining power of Jesus. So verse 2, his face shone like the sun, but now the verse continues, and his clothes became white as light. This radiant description will be the description of Jesus for eternity future. But now in verse 3, some other people show up. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. That is so interesting. Why are those two there? Why would it be Moses and Elijah that are there? What are the implications of this? What does this mean? Notice Moses and Elijah are there, and they're talking with him. Let me make some observations as to why it's Moses and Elijah. Moses is known as the writer of the law. Elijah is known as the best-known prophet. So here, the law and the prophets are attesting to their fulfillment, the law and the prophets are talking to the one of whom the law and the prophets foretold and predicted. The law and the prophets are pointing to Jesus. Furthermore, Moses and Elijah were known as messianic forerunners to prepare people for the coming Messiah. And here they are attesting Jesus as that coming Messiah. Now verse 4, and Peter, always swift to speak, (laughs) spoke. Verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter makes two critical errors in verse four. Let me explain them both to you. First, notice that Peter says, one for you, one for you, one for you. And you only say one for you, and one for you, and one for you, if you think they're all the same footing. You think they're all equal. Peter has critically erred by thinking that Jesus is on the same footing as Moses and Elijah. D.A. Carson writes, what Peter blurted out compromised Jesus' uniqueness. Remember, Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah merely bear witness concerning him. Peter wrongly thinks they're on the same plane. But Peter also makes a second critical error. It's not merely that he says, one for you, one for you, one for you, but it's also that he thinks they should have tents so that they can all stay a while. But what did we read Jesus say at the end of chapter 16 when he had to sharply rebuke Peter? That Jesus has an urgent mission, and that urgent mission is to go to the cross. Therefore, Jesus is not looking to sit and stay a while, nor is he looking for rest, His face is set to Jerusalem. Peter has critically erred, not only by putting Jesus on the same footing, but also failing to see the urgency of Jesus' mission. In that sense, Peter did almost exactly what he did at the end of chapter 16. On the one hand, in his well-meaning urgency, he said something very true. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he quickly followed it up by trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross we should understand something that peter misses in this passage but later by god's grace we'll understand the transfiguration is giving us a glimpse not just of what jesus will be but of what jesus has always been from eternity past actually we have to use our language even more careful than that when we use the word jesus we're describing and don't lose me here and this is a bit technical But God the Son has eternally existed as the uncreated creator who has the exact glory as the Father. When we call him Jesus, we're using the name the angels told us to call him when the word became flesh. So on the mountain, not only is Jesus revealing the glory he will have, he's revealing the glory he has always had, but has only veiled in flesh for his earthly ministry. See, Jesus has always been, but he has always been as God, the Son, and the veiling of humanity has caused even Peter to temporarily forget that. Now, verse 5, I think is the funniest phrase of the passage. He was still speaking when God spoke, and I laugh every time I read that verse because it's as if God the Father knew he had to interrupt Peter to get a word in. So Peter still speaking when God the Father finally cuts him off. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter and everyone else, be quiet and listen to my Son. Now, this is the second time in the Gospels that God the Father has said these exact words. Behold, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, both of these are actually quotations of the Old Testament. My beloved son is Psalm 2, verse 7. With whom I am well pleased is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Psalm 2 is about the king of kings. Isaiah 42 is about the suffering Savior. I love the way Isaiah 42 says it. This is my son, my servant, in whom my soul delights. Now, the timing of when God the Father says it is very important. The first time God the Father speaks audibly is at Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his public ministry. But the second and final time that God the Father speaks audibly is right before his beginning of the end as he's on the road to the crucifixion. God the Father is bookending God the Son in affirmation of who he is but perhaps even more striking is when God the Father is silent. And that is when Jesus is on the cross. And why is God the Father silent then? Because in some ways, far beyond our finite comprehension, Jesus now bears our sin. And in that moment, God the Father cannot receive him in the way that he could receive a sinner. That's the beauty of knowing when the God the Father speaks and when he does not. Jesus is committed to fulfilling what we desperately need, and God the Father is letting us know up front he is worthy of it, though he will bear our sins for us. The timing means a lot. But also, listen to him is striking based on who is no longer there. In the verses we're about to read, we'll see that after Jesus is affirmed by the Father, Moses and Elijah disappear. Why is that? Remember, it's because the prophets and the law merely point to the substance of which they are the shadow. When God the Father says, listen to Him, it is because Jesus is the climax of all of God's revelation. This does not mean that none of God's revelation matters in any other sense, but it means that this is the center of the necklace. The diadem that shines brightest is the one that everything else points to. All the links in the chain are to lead us to Jesus. So may we listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this audible voice of God the Father, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. In both the Greek and in the ESV, the word only is last for emphasis. When they looked, there was no one else left but Christ alone. And what lesson is that for them? That their only hope to rise and stand before a holy, mighty, and awesome God is to be touched by Jesus and to look to him alone when he says, rise. There is much similarity between this passage and Isaiah 6. Isaiah the prophet sees a glimpse of God on his throne and immediately says woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and he cannot rise until a cherubim touches him and cleanses him similarly here in this passage Jesus comes over notice in verse 7 puts his hand on them and touches them saying rise and have no fear and when they look the only one left for them to look to is Jesus So it is today, there is only one hope to stand before a holy and mighty God and it is Christ and Christ alone. And in the verses that follow, Jesus will again explain why it is to him alone that we must look. Because while the disciples are confused, Jesus in amazing love is willing to suffer in their place. Look in verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, and notice now the rest of the lessons in Matthew 17 will be downstream of the mountain, literally and metaphorically. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Have you noticed in the Gospels how often Jesus will heal someone or do something and then say, now don't tell anybody about this? It often confuses readers in their first time through the Gospel. Why is Jesus telling me I'm not allowed to tell people about who he is? Scholars call this the messianic secret and why is Jesus so committed to keeping it? Did you know in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time Jesus says, until, it's the first time he gives a time frame when they will be allowed to share what he is. And notice what the time frame is connected to. The accomplishment and fulfillment of the mission for which he came to die and rise so that our sins can be atoned. The reason Jesus holds the secret until the right time Is because he knows many people are happy to receive him as a political savior or as someone who can accomplish earthly blessings. But what we really need is a savior from our sin who can make us right with God. And it is to that mission that Jesus is devoted. So tell no one until I've suffered. Now verse 10. And the disciples ask him, well, wait, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come. Now, if you've been following us in Matthew, this question is especially interesting because in Matthew 11, Jesus explicitly says in verse 13, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who is to come, John the Baptist. So wait, six chapters ago, Jesus explicitly told them, that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah promise from Malachi 4 verse 5. So why then are the disciples asking it now? Well, look again in verse 10 and look carefully. The disciples are asking why the scribes think this. Why do the scribes still look for Elijah? Why do they think Elijah hasn't come? Perhaps the Uh, the disciples are also thinking, we just saw Elijah on the mountain. (laughs) So what's going on here? What's happening? If the Elijah figure is to come, and that's the restoration of all things, and if the scribes are still waiting for him, but you say it's John the Baptist, then wait. Why hasn't the restoration of all things happened? Aren't we supposed to celebrate now? And what Jesus is pointing out to them is that John the Baptist's role to fulfill Elijah's promised ministry has succeeded, but not immediately for reception, but immediately for rejection before restoration comes. Look now in verse 11 as Jesus affirms what has happened in part, but is yet to happen in full. He answered, Elijah does come. And notice, he will in the future restore all things. But I also tell you, Elijah has already come. How's that for clarity? He will come, and he's already come. (laughs) And they did not recognize him, but did to them whatever they pleased. In the Bible, if this helps you, there are often prophecies given that fulfill in ways that are beyond our initial expectation and may have a near and a far fulfillment. I've explained it before as an archer who has a bow and he's pulling it back on the top of a mountain. And then that bow splinters and one lands short and another lands far. Jesus is saying here that Elijah has come and yet he is still yet to come. He has come when John the Baptist came and yet the full restoration is not yet because this is the servant who must suffer first. But notice how Jesus describes the suffering he will endure. What did they do to John the Baptist? Look at verse 12. They did to John the Baptist whatever they pleased. Do you remember what they pleased to do to him? They beheaded him and put his head on a silver platter so that Herodias and Salome could be pleased. But now notice who will endure that same level of cruel treatment. The verse continues, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Now, let's freeze for a second and not forget where we were on the top of the mountain. This Son of Man, just revealed a preview of his glory and everybody fell on the ground afraid. And he's going to suffer? What does that tell us about his suffering? It tells us that Jesus' suffering is voluntary. He is choosing to give himself. It also tells us that his suffering is substitutionary. If he shows brilliant glory, then he is sinless. And if he shows brilliant power, then he has the power to refuse this. And yet Jesus is going to go to the cross willingly, not because he has something to pay for, but willingly so that he can pay for what we have done. Jesus is choosing to suffer for those of us who are all sinners, though he is sinless and he is willing See, Jesus showing a glimpse of his glory so close in time into the crucifixion is no accident. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus says in verse 21 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed on the third day and be raised. You're in chapter 17. Look down to verse 22. He says the same thing in the middle of the transfiguration, but he books and it ends it with a promise of his suffering. Verse twenty-two, seventeen: 17, the Son of Man is about to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Almost the same thing he said at the end of chapter 16, and they were greatly distressed. The transfiguration makes this clear. Jesus doesn't deserve to die, and Jesus has the power to refuse to die, but Jesus is choosing to die and suffer in the place of those of us who actually do deserve it. One of the common charges against Christianity is that, well, why can't God just wipe his hand and overlook sin? Why does anyone have to suffer? I mean, can't sin just be overlooked? We had an example of this recently in some of our close loved ones. Uh, Without sharing too many details, here's the long and short of the story. People who are close to us are a husband and wife. They're married. They have several children together. They got to a point in their marriage that they were having significant marital problems. And so they decided to take a break to try to work things out and come together and be reconciled. During that break, the husband adulterously started a relationship with another woman and actually got that woman pregnant and had a child in the time that they were trying to be on break to work on their marriage. When he came back to his wife, assuming now that the situation is hopeless— his wife, learning of his sin and his infidelity, was willing to forgive him for his sin and in fact receive him back. The husband has later said since this time that the thing that actually broke him and caused him to now follow Christ was his wife's willingness to receive him back. But in order for her to receive him back, she has and continues to suffer in fact, she left the very good job that she had and she moved several states to the state where this other woman lives who has had a child with her husband so that they can continue to be involved in that child's life and help raise that child. Now, that is an example of how forgiveness always necessitates costly suffering. You can never just say, I forgive without bearing the cost of what someone else has done. So note this this morning. Jesus did not just die for us. He died because of us. He did not just die in our place. He died because our sins demand punishment. And God the Father, in great love, so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus, so that we would not have to perish for what we have done, but so that someone innocent would perish in our place. This is the shock of the gospel. And Jesus is trying to help them grasp it. Now, what does all this mean for us? Let's start with a couple big implications. Here's what it first means. Jesus, make no mistake here, is God the Son. Now, in Exodus 33, Moses is on the mountain about to get the Ten Commandments. And Moses says to God, let me see your glory. And God says, no one can see my glory and live. And so Moses hides in the cleft of the rock and the part of the hind part of the glory of God passes over him. And now, 1,500 years later, Moses' prayer is being answered. Here is the glory of God, Moses. And here is the glory of God, us. It is in the face of Jesus. Furthermore, we should note something that Peter later learned as we read in 2 Peter. After time, in reflection by God's grace, Peter was able to realize this. A God that glorious who chooses to suffer in such humiliation is a God worth worshiping. In fact, we read in Philippians 2 verse 8. Well, verse 7 that Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. It was born in the likeness of men, but now verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Never forget the breathtaking humility that Jesus chose to undertake to save sinners. I'm so glad he gave a glimpse of his glory before the crucifixion so that there was no confusion about the worthiness of this person standing as a condemned criminal. But understand this also this morning. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, veiled his glory in human flesh. But in eternity future, he will unveil that glory. And when his glory is on full display, it is like an unsheathed sword that now comes only as the righteous judge. We read this in Revelation verses 19 and 21. In those passages, we read a person on a white horse called Faithful and True, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the next chapter, we read that on his great white throne, no coincidence there, the earth and the sky fled away where he brought all to, ju- to judgment. In his earthly ministry, Jesus veiled his glory, but in his eternal ministry, he unsheathes his glory. And today and today only in this life is the opportunity for salvation. If we do not come to Christ in humble faith now, We will stand before him and be condemned in righteous judgment then. This transfiguration gives a preview of the righteous glory that Jesus has to judge the earth. But now I want to give some specific implications for the way we live as Christians. What Jesus did on the mountaintop has implications for how we live down the mountain in everyday life. Yesterday, my wife and I and our kids drove to Durham, We were just trying to pick something up there. I have a a relative who graduated from Duke Law School a couple of years ago, and he hopes because of COVID to come back in the fall and have his wedding at the chapel there. And so I wanted to walk around and see the chapel. So we parked and we've never been to the campus before. And we just ended up walking through, I think it's called the Sarah Duke Gardens. Do you guys know what that is? So we're walking through these beautiful gardens. They were incredible. The man at the front saw our little kids and said, hey, you guys would really like the Discovery Center. You should go there. So we turned and made our way up to the Discovery Center, and that's where they grow like uh, really hot peppers and pumpkins, and I had to keep grabbing my children and telling them, you can't pull the peppers (laughs) off there. And as we were walking around, we got to the back, and there's a big chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, it written in handwriting, it looked like it was written by a child, said this knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. (laughs) Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. I really enjoyed that quote. So here we have knowledge that you've learned this morning. You've learned knowledge that Jesus is God, the son, that he has eternal, intrinsic glory. But how will that knowledge become wisdom for you? And I think there's actually three examples in Matthew 17 about how this glorious knowledge of who Jesus truly is becomes wisdom in your everyday living on the downstream of the mountain. Here's the first way. It becomes wisdom if you learn to worship something infinitely greater than yourself, but find yourself's worth eternally enraptured by his glory granted to you through faith. It becomes wisdom if you learn to worship someone infinitely greater than yourself, but you're eternally enraptured by the glory that he grants you by becoming his through faith. The Olympics has been a recent example of this to me because we've had a cultural conversation about how you should feel based on other people, other people's view of you and what makes the self valuable or lacking of worth. What makes me valuable? Is it what other people think of me? Is it my accomplishments? What if they don't like me anymore? Does that mean I don't have value anymore? And as that debate's been happening this past week in the Olympics, not as many people know about a Christian Olympian and his understanding of his value. His name is Kyle Snyder. He's a U.S. wrestler. When he was 20 years old, he won gold in Rio. He's the youngest Olympian to ever win gold in wrestling. But then two years later, in 2018, he was competing in a match, and he and he lost. And the interviewer came up to him after the match and said this, How is this loss going to now define you? And here's what Kyle said. Wins or losses don't define me. I mean, I love wrestling. It's a big part of my life. But I'm not defined by the sport. I'm defined by my faith in Jesus. See, the lesson down the mountain is this. If Jesus is that glorious, it means he's infinitely greater than me. And if I try to find my glory in myself, it will always be unsatisfying and actually devour us. But if instead my glory is this, I am his and he is mine forever, then I have a glory that can never be lost, and I have an identity that can never be shattered. So the first lesson is worship. The second lesson when we come down the mountain is trust. Look in verse 5, or I'm sorry, look in Matthew 17, um, verse 14. When they came to a crowd, so this is just as they've come down the mountain, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And let me freeze there for a minute. In Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus commissioned the disciples to heal and cast out demons. We do not have that same commission. But these original apostles did. So they've been given this commission. They've been given this power. And yet, here's an opportunity to exercise it. And they fail miserably, even though they've just seen Jesus glorified. Why? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 20. He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, of course, this promise is in line with Jesus's commands and commission. And we don't have the same commission to exercise demons or to heal people. But by the end of Matthew, we do have a commission that is applicable to us as one example of many. And it is the commission that we go and make disciples of all nations, and Jesus promises he'll be with us to the end of the age. But how often, if we're honest, when we are preparing to witness or we're preparing to share the gospel, do we turn back in fear? Are we, like these original disciples, forgetting God's glory? If on the mountaintop we see a glimpse of the glory of God, then why at the foot of the mountain when we be afraid to step forward and trust for the things Jesus has promised he will be with us to accomplish? So, the mountain should change our worship, the mountain should change our trust, and third, the mountain should change our freedom. Here's how Matthew 17 ends. Verse 24, it's sort of a weird story unless you understand where it is in context. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not obey, not pay the tax? And he said, Well, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? It's a simple question. If people in power are collecting tax, do they collect that from their own household or from those outside? The answer, verse 26, Simon Peter said correctly, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me. And notice this last phrase, and for yourself. See, on the mountain, they saw a glimpse of God's glory. But when they came down the mountain to real life, They weren't sure where provision would come from and where power would come from and where their worship belonged. Remember, in this last half of the book, Jesus is focusing on those who are already his followers. So today, he's focusing on you who are already his followers. You've seen a glimpse of my glory through the word, but has it changed practically your worship? Has it changed practically your trust? Has it changed practically your freedom? Now, of course, we must not abuse this incredible miracle of a shekel inside a fish. It doesn't mean we should view God as a vending machine. It doesn't mean we should try to name it and claim it, nor does it mean we should be lazy. But here's what it does mean. In an hour or so, my wife and I and our kids will get in the car, and we are very much excited to take a few days of vacation. And what my young children, who had a few responsibilities this week, don't understand is though they were supposed to pack a little bit of clothes and help get a few things in the vehicle, they really have no clue how we're going to get there or how it's going to be paid for or what's going to be provided on the way or any of the other complexities that we as their parents have been thinking through. In this incredible picture at the end of Matthew 17, we see this, that the same God who dwells in infinite glory on the top of the mountain can put money in a fish if you need it. (laughs) And the same God who has infinite glory, who said light come out of darkness, is the same God who provides the resources for everything he's called us to do. And so the mountain should change our worship. And the mountain should change our trust. And if you know God as your father through faith in his son Jesus, the mountain should make you free. Because your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So let us pray to him now through his son. Dear God, I thank you, Lord, for granting a glimpse of your glory through your son Jesus to Peter, James, and John on the top of the mountain. But then years later, Peter wrote what all of us recited earlier, that now we have a more confirmed prophecy in the Bible. Meaning that all of us, by the power of the Spirit, can have a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the text that we read today because the Word of God is living and active. So, Lord, I pray that the Spirit will do that living work and press to us how glorious Jesus is. May we realize afresh today what Jesus gave up to go to the cross He, with all power and all glory on a mountain, next climbed a hill to Calvary. And there he bled, not because he had ever done anything wrong, but because he was bearing arson on his body. And there he did not hear from his father, but instead cried out to his father and heard no response. Because in that moment, he bore our sin. And our sin separates us from God. Help someone today to realize that if they've not yet trusted in God by asking for forgiveness of their sin, that they too will never hear the Father again. They will eternally live in silence. But Lord, as Christians, we know that that silence was just until the sin was paid. And after Jesus was able to say, it is finished, He rose. And just as He touched His disciples and says, rise, rise, have no fear. So also when we receive him in faith, he can say to us, rise, have no fear. You're no longer an outsider, but a son. And so, Lord, if we are yours and you are our Father, let that practically change our worship. Help us not to try to find worth in who we are, what we do, or the self, but to find worth in the glory of Jesus being gifted to us eternally, and one day we will be like him because we will see him face to face. Lord, help us to be changed in our trust. There are so many things you've called us to do that we then think, I don't know if this can happen, but you've given us the promise that you will not leave us or forsake us. Help it to change our freedom. Lord, every day we worry about where is this going to come from? Where is that going to come from? How is this going to get fixed? Thank you, Lord, that in life we're in the back seat and you're the driver and you're the good father. And so we can trust you to provide beyond what we could ask or think. So let this vision on the mountain permeate us even as we walk down at the base. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.